Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for those experiencing a mental health crisis. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. I am your host, Travis Atkinson, and it is a pleasure to be with you here today, helping you to become hip to all things behavioral health crisis. I want to start today's episode with a little bit of a confession or an explanation. When I began thinking up this podcast several months ago, I was putting together ideas about the parameters, the content, the purpose of the cast. And one of the conscious decisions that I wanted to make was to create a timeless podcast that people could listen to at any time versus a timely podcast that would be more grounded in what's happening here and now, but might not have relevance over time. And I suppose that a good podcast could be a little of both, but my propensity is towards timeless whenever I can help it. I learned that idea when I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, which is called Manager Tools. And the founders of Manager Tools, Mark Horstman and Mike Ozine, said the same thing. They said, we want to give guidance about being an effective manager that is not timely and talking about what's happening with trends in a certain month or year, but what is timeless and what are those tools or skills that can last throughout a career. And that really stuck with me. And this is what I've been trying to do here so far with the Crisis Podcast is to share information that certainly has context to where we are as a system, but also to provide guidance that is timeless that will be helpful for people to conceptualize their approach to behavioral health services regardless of the year or when you're listening. So I'm bringing all this up because... At the time that I'm recording this podcast, which is March of 2020, there is a coronavirus outbreak spreading in the U.S. and across the globe. As of today, the coronavirus is in all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and some U.S. territories with about 9,000 cases and 150 confirmed deaths. This pandemic is affecting behavioral health crisis providers, too, And I want to make sure that they're not forgotten amidst all of this chaos and turmoil. There are a number of unintended consequences that are happening as a result of social distancing and quarantining, as well as consequences that are happening because people are getting sick. So for starters, crisis call centers are receiving callers who have increased anxiety and fear and agitation as they're having their jobs suspended or they're losing their jobs, that their children's schools are closing indefinitely and their therapists are closing or moving to a telehealth platform. Some mobile crisis teams are being suspended due to the risk of exposure and it's leaving emergency departments and law enforcement and EMS to respond to and triage patients, which increases the likelihood that we have an ED boarding issue or that more people go to the psychiatric hospital. I facilitated a national conference call this week with some crisis residential providers, and they're dealing with a lot of challenges that come with these changes trying to figure out what to do if their clients become infected or how to respond to a reduction in psychiatric hospital beds when area hospitals are starting to not admit new clients. Addressing social distancing when your crisis home is already 10 beds or more, and that's not even including the staff. Do you comply with state or federal guidance and regulations, or do you serve the most people who are in crisis? So as you think about people responding to the crisis, like law enforcement, fire, EMS, emergency department staff, don't forget the crisis workers. It's really important that we consider them and include them in decision-making. 
And if you're a crisis worker, make sure that your voice is heard in these important conversations and decisions happening in your community. Okay, now on to today's episode. With me is Sergeant John Witkowski. John is the public information officer for the Grand Rapids Police Department. Before I talk more about John, I want to share some information about Grand Rapids, which happens to be my hometown and where I now live. Grand Rapids, Michigan is a city of about 200,000 people within a county, Kent County, of about 650,000 people. So comparable cities would be Salt Lake City or Amarillo, Texas, Aurora, Illinois, Akron, Ohio, or Little Rock, Arkansas. So 200,000 people makes Grand Rapids the second largest city in Michigan, only to Detroit. Grand Rapids is three hours northeast of Chicago and a little under three hours northwest of Detroit, and it's also 40 minutes from beautiful Lake Michigan. Grand Rapids is known for many things. Uh, We've been the furniture capital of the world for a long time. We were one of the first cities to put fluoride into our water. We're the birthplace of Amway. And for a while, we were the home of David Letterman's top 10 list back in the 90s. So as you can see, we have a lot to be proud of. Now, I'm sure there's a question in your head, and that is, are the Rapids and Grand Rapids really grand? And the answer is they used to be. Uh, There were large boulders and other um, items in the river that made the Rapids large. Those were taken out many years ago, but there's discussions about bringing those back in onto the Grand River, which is the river that runs through Grand Rapids. The more you know. Okay. Now on to the community services that John references during his interview. First thing you should know, in the state of Michigan, there are 82 counties and there are 46 community mental health centers or CMHs as we call them. In the rural areas, those CMHs are providing most or all of the behavioral health services directly. In the larger counties, the CMHs contract with nonprofit providers for those essential services, case management, emergency services, things like that. Michigan has a publicly managed Medicaid behavioral health system. And one of the CMHs that operates in Kent County is called Network 180. The largest healthcare provider in the state of Michigan is called Spectrum Health, which John mentions. Hope Network is a behavioral health provider, another statewide provider, and they also operate many crisis residential programs, including the ones in Kent County for adults. And then there's Interact, which is the assertive community treatment team, uh, case management organization, Cherry Health. Uh, Mel Trotter and Degage are homeless shelters that John references, and the Red Project is a needle exchange program. John talks about meeting the founders of the crisis intervention team model, which is also known as the Memphis model, and how it became adapted to Grand Rapids. And he also talks about some of his mentors. So here is episode five of the Crisis Podcast, John Witkowski. Kowski, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here today. So the first question I always like to ask my guests is, what do you do and why do you do it? I am a Grand Rapids Police Department officer. I've been here 24 years. Currently, I am the public information officer, so I deal with uh, network and local media outlets as well as uh, our social media platform, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and I manage those. Outside of that, uh, I, I am involved in departmental training centered around uh, mental health, and I am a crisis negotiator. So part of my job is essentially dealing with communications to the broader public, And the other half of my job deals with crises of one level or another. Why I do it, I love the work, first of all. I never planned on getting into law enforcement. And in fact, when uh, I was uh, a young kid, I had uh, 
quite a few interactions uh, on the other side of the law growing <laughs> up. Okay. And uh, going through school, formally, uh, I was uh, going down the business track, but uh, I realized I, I did not enjoy that. I thought I wanted to make a lot of money, but I quickly realized uh, my... My belief system really was more in the line of uh, service work uh, and providing service to the community. And I was lucky enough to meet a community officer back in the mid-90s by the name of Al Halst. And as I had indicated, I had gotten into quite a bit of trouble. And uh, he was a police officer, however, that was really different from any other officer I had ever met. He was great with kids. He was empathetic. He could talk to anyone. He was really one of those guys that uh, sort of personifies the officer-friendly uh, mentality. And I, I got to know him. And from there, he really sort of encouraged me to go into this line of work because I developed a passion for it as well. I was lucky enough to get hired on as an intern uh, back at the police department over uh, at the old building on Monroe, and then went through the academy, and uh, kind of the rest is history. But in that time, uh, I always had somewhat of a, I wouldn't say fascination, but a need to learn more about some of our uh, marginalized community members. And, and mental health has always been an interest to me. Uh, I took psychology in college. I, I, I'm not degreed in it, but I've always find it fascinating. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, at the Grand Rapids Police Department, we really did not know how to deal with mental health. The language was strange to us. The revolving door that we saw really was sort of counter to our, uh, our mentality of, uh, you know, lock them up and have the system deal with them and not see them again. And just a general lack of communication and collaboration with the mental health system really was a divide that we saw in the community. And the police chief back then, Harry Dolan, put together a group, including myself uh, and a couple other officers, and sort of charged us to seek out information, knowledge, to sort of bridge this gap, to provide training to officers, and most importantly, to provide better service to, again, some of our most marginalized citizens. So we went down to Memphis, Tennessee, which was fun in and of itself, yeah. uh, and learned about what is called the Memphis model. Now, the Memphis model is the seminal model on CIT training. It is the model, in fact. So we met uh, Sam Cochran and Randy DuPont, who are the, uh, the founders of this type of training, and they were fabulous hosts. They brought us around the town. And we were allowed to ride with officers down there to really help to understand how we can bring their model here to Grand Rapids. So Memphis started its model after following a tragedy. Correct. Right? And that is the, the way that m many, if not most, CIT teams have started in communities is, you know, a, a, a terrible thing happens, a tragic event happens, and then kind of the city or the, the department or the community wakes up. Was that the case for Grand Rapids or did, were they doing this more proactively? That's a fantastic question. We started out uh, as a proactive initiative in the city, but it... Uh, it developed a whole new feel after a tragic situation happened here in the city. One day, one evening, an individual by the name of Willie Thurman was caught in a stolen car. Willie was an individual that suffered from schizophrenia, and it was his birthday, and he came across a car that was running in a driveway, warming up. Well, Willie thought this was his birthday present, so he got into the car and drove away. Obviously, the owner had called the police and indicated that their car had been stolen. A little bit time later, we found Willie in the car. He was stopped. He was arrested for the, the auto theft. Well, Willie was taken to jail, and at jail, he decompensated. So jail's a harsh environment, and uh, it was a situation in which he became ever more symptomatic to the point where he became somewhat violent in nature. The jail deputies had to uh, secure him, and at one point in time, there was an altercation. 
During that altercation, Willie developed a medical situation. So he was taken to the hospital, and due to that interaction, Willie passed away. And it was the culmination of events, certainly us arresting him, certainly what occurred at the jail. And from there, his family, particularly his sister Denise, didn't turn this into a opportunity for complaining or informing the community of all the things that we did wrong, and we did several. But she used it as an opportunity to educate and bring these systems together to better encourage law enforcement and corrections to get the needed training so they can recognize somebody that has a condition, to ask the right questions, to de-escalate effectively, and most importantly, instead of taking someone to jail like Willie, take them to a mental health facility where they can get the needed treatment so we don't have future tragedies such as this. Mm. Without Denise, uh, we, would be, we would not be where we are today. Certainly a tragedy all the way around, but this really was a springboard for us and a true understanding on how we, through our training, through our understanding, through our experience, on how we can make this better in the community and how we can ensure this doesn't happen again. From there, officers have been trained in, in a CIT-type model. Now, we're not exactly like Memphis. We do it a little bit different here. How do you adapt? What's different? Well, we uh, uh, some of what is trained in the 40-hour block is augmented with different information. So we saw that... Uh, the initial model was a little too heavy on the, the psychotropics, the medication. A lot of that information officers didn't necessarily need. Now, we still provide that information through other mediums, but we thought we probably would be better served in more scenario-based training. So kind of putting more information in the scenarios to ensure that officers get the, the, the practical application of what we're doing. We also understood that the de-escalation component, the, the learning how to talk to somebody who's symptomatic, we wanted to spend a little more time on that as well. The medication component, very important, but we realized that the interaction, the human interaction, the communication, uh, the de-escalation is a little more important when we're dealing with somebody that is particularly, again, either they're symptomatic, they're suicidal, they're just having a, a plain bad day. Uh, and this has become very important because when I started, the majority of calls that we would receive were almost purely domestic related. They were arguments, individuals not getting along, substance abuse was part of it. But today, most of our calls have some mental health component. Now, we're not always talking about chronic mental illness here, but we're almost always talking about some sort of behavioral issue, some sort of underlying depression or anxiety, coupled with a substance abuse issue. So officers really need to be trained and educated on what is happening contemporarily. We receive more suicide-type calls than we have ever before. And certainly the data backs that up in the community and nationally with what we're seeing here is not just the complaints of suicide or suicidal, suicidal ideations, but certainly the completions. And if we can talk someone off the proverbial ledge, if we can get them to the place where they need to go and get professional help, we understand that is certainly a evidence-based practice, but more importantly, it gets people um, the, the treatment and the help that they deserve. Hmm. So I have a, a place in my heart for police officers, partly because my dad worked around them for 30 years, but, but also similar to, I think, people who work in emergency departments, you are always exposed to challenging situations. I mean, I imagine the opportunity to play basketball with neighborhood kids on the street is, is more of the exception than the rule. Correct. And when you go out to a call, 
and, you know, respond and a person's got a mental health issue and you help them as best they can, you bring them where they need to go. The next thing that you're doing is also, uh, I call it deficit-based work. It's just, it's always, it, you're exposed to the challenges or the problems that the community has. What is that like for you and your fellow officers to be exposed to that level of issues with social determinants of health, with poverty, unemployment, and mental illness on a daily basis? You know, I often say when I teach in the academy, no one calls the police when they're having a good day. Uh, We rarely get called when somebody graduates or gets engaged or has a birthday. It's almost always when somebody was in crisis on one level or another. And certainly mentally, emotionally, and sometimes even behaviorally, it affects officers profoundly. And this cumulative stress that we see, uh, this cumulative trauma that often occurs with officers is a significant issue that we're dealing with here at the police department. Certainly the crises on the street need to be dealt with first. That's why we're employed. That's why we go into this line of work. We're professionals and we help people get the services they need. Now, with that being said, we also realize that peer support, providing outlets for officers that are positive to ensuring that they're whole or made whole in in the event that a traumatic or critical situation occurs is hugely important, not only for our department, but for, for the profession as a whole. We have a terrible time hiring officers right now. This is not a line of work people want to go into. Um, some of it is of our own doing. Certainly some of the, the, the local and national stories that have portrayed officers in a negative light. Things that we need to work on. But oftentimes officers or those that are wanting to go into this profession realize the psychological and emotional toll that this takes day in and day out. We have a peer support team. We're very, very much engaged in our employee assistance program. We hmm. ensure that officers have the outlets to get assistance. But that's just one component. We also need to ensure that their families know what these individuals go through day in and day out. We need to be clued in to suicide and trauma, whether it is the acute trauma that happens as the result of a baby death or a horrific traffic crash or an officer's involved shooting. But more significantly is that cumulative stress that occurs over, the, over a career. We have found that to be almost more problematic than the acute stress. And sometimes that's hard to identify and hard to address because oftentimes there are multiple layers, multiple issues that one has to unravel. Now, it's probably well known that cops are not the easiest to talk to in a therapeutic setting. And in fact, oftentimes they won't even seek out assistance. We're trying to sort of break that paradigm to ensure that, hey, you know what, there is... There is no harm in seeking out assistance. The stigma associated with mental health and mental health therapy and counseling, we're trying to obliterate that. We're trying to normalize the idea that going to your physical once a year, there's really nothing different than going to a mental health physical. And if you feel you need a tune-up, you feel that you need to check in with someone, by all means, do it. We're not going to find out. We're not going to follow you there. And in fact, we applaud officers that get that assistance. And most recently, within the last month, we have hired a wellness coordinator who is a master's level social worker. She is going to assist officers not only in their physical wellness, but again, providing assistance with, again, their mental health. And maybe not necessarily being there as the... uh, Uh, department counselor per se, but at least someone there that can provide individuals, officers, resources. I want to dive into that a little bit more. Sometimes I see a parallel between veterans and law enforcement when it comes to what you're asked to do day in and day out and how you cope and get through those. And I think that the traditional message for veterans has kind of been hold the line let your emotions come second in this process. Like you have duty and you have, you know, obligations and you're going to be exposed to terrible things, you know, atrocities or just, just sometimes the worst that humans can be towards each other. And then veterans come back 
and they're expected to acclimate and, and exist in, in a life with civilians when they've, they've learned to, to live in a, a very different world. But then the other side of me wonders, so what is a, what is an in, what is a veteran, or what is a, a, not even a veteran, but somebody who is a soldier that's also in tune with their emotions, can they do that? You know, and I, I guess, so I'm asking this in the same way with law enforcement. Can officers be both in tune with their emotions and with their feelings and be effective and have a long career? They have to be trained. They have to learn. It's not natural. We compartmentalized, much like veterans. Um, we cope on different levels. Um, we are taught or we're self-taught resiliency and coping skills. But it's hard. Put yourself in the perspective of an officer, day in, day out, negativity. That's all they see. That's all they hear. That's, that's what they're inundated with. And then they go home to a family and they have, to, they have to set aside what they just dealt with in an 8, 10, or 12-hour shift, switch gears mentally and emotionally to engage with their spouse, to play with their children, to even make basic decisions on where to go for dinner. Now, that may sound trite and simplistic, but when you are put into an environment that just is so negative on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a yearly basis, it tends to take a toll. And that's why it's important that when we bring new officers on board and when we teach our veteran officers that to have coping skills, to become resilient, is, a, is an effort and not only what they do to ensure that they're healthy here at work, but to ensure that they're healthy at home. We cannot check our emotions at the door. We can't just walk into the front door of our homes and check all that baggage. Same when we come into work. We can't check that those issues that are associated in our personal lives. Officers are taught and need to be taught at a higher level on how to deal with those and how to effectively compartmentalize those issues that are occurring in, in, in their separate lives, so to speak. It's hard and it's not natural. And I'll be the first one to tell you, it's one of those things that um, we truly don't understand to the point of effectively dealing with. I think just only recently within the last 10 to 12 years, certainly at the Grand Rapids Police Department, do we, do we really understand how this long-term trauma, this cumulative trauma affects officers? Having flashbacks, um, uh, having issues well after they retire, things that they never even thought of that were becoming an issue when they thought they dealt with them years ago are starting to come back. So we talk about PTSD and in the military, well, there's a significant amount of PTSD in law enforcement as well. I think we'll start to realize the long-term effects more and more, but certainly it is here at the Grand Rapids Police Department. You talked about some of the changes that have happened with the department and how they conceptualize people who are struggling with mental illness or who are suicidal. And I think sometimes we label or put prejudice towards what we don't understand or what scares us. If you are, you know, an officer in the 90s, not to say this doesn't happen today, but if you're an officer in the 90s and you arrest someone like Willie and you've, you're not exposed to that kind of world or that being that out of, uh, out of touch, you're going to say, gosh, you know, the loony bins full today or gosh, another crazy or whatever it is. But really behind that, I imagine that there is a, a sense of helplessness and, frustration and fear that Willie, if you, if you subscribe to a model that says that this is a, um, a biological condition, Willie didn't do anything to deserve this. He didn't make bad choices. And so if it could happen to him, then it could happen to me or my daughter or my, you know, my brother, or my dad, whatever it is. So that leads me to this question. How have you seen your fellow police officers change in their approach to mental health in the time that you've been on the force with, with the GRPD? 
That's a great question. You know, it, it first starts with the connections our officers make in the community. And, and I'll use the Heartside community as an example. We have challenges in that community, uh, high levels of poverty and homelessness, and certainly mental health is a, that component. But the officers that work down there understand that individuals they, that they address and deal with day in and day out are more than their illness. They're more than their condition. And that, that sense of understanding, that connection, that empathy that they develop assist them in doing their job because they are dealing oftentimes with the same people day in and day out. And it's a, it's a revolving door. Oftentimes it does become frustrating. And then I think the other side of that is that outside of our jobs, particularly this new group of officers, this new generation, they seem to get it a little bit more. And I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from, now, we certainly have seen higher rates of mental health and mental illness in our community. And I know just anecdotally in talking to officers in their own families, they confront family members with depression and schizophrenia and anxiety and a host of other disorders that destigmatizes this and allows them to be more empathetic on the street. These newer officers, this new generation, are much easily trained and they they tend to it resonates with them a little bit more than a veteran officer who again as you had spoken to before didn't understand or doesn't understand or is going back to when they started in the way that we dealt with individuals with a mental health condition i'm not saying for a second that an older veteran officer cannot learn and become empathetic and isn't empathetic i'm not saying that for a second but Oftentimes, we have seen, I have seen, the officers that have recently come on board in the last 10 years um, really have a greater understanding of not only mental health and mental illness, but more importantly, how to communicate, which is ironic because I think oftentimes this current generation we bash because they're so glued or so tied into their smart devices and so in tune to technology that they don't know how to communicate. I really don't see that as the case, particularly here in our department. They communicate in a different way, in a, in a different manner. And it makes them no less than a veteran on the street who's, again, had 30 years of the ability to communicate. They just have a greater understanding on what someone is dealing with mentally and emotionally. They tend to have, they tend to set aside preconceived notions and biases and stereotypes. This generation um, seamlessly talks to uh, a crack-addicted mental health and mentally ill individual on Cherry Street and then can talk to the CEO of Spectrum Health uh, it, it, uh, you know, within minutes. And it, it just, it amazes me how adept that they are at conversation. And they just really see no color. It's, 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 it's really profound on some levels. So I think that's hugely important. It really allows a, a, a greater level of clarity and certainly a greater level of understanding when we put these new officers on the street and they're dealing with folks that are in crisis. You mentioned something when you were talking about your officers working in the Heartside District and seeing people as people. And Sometimes that's manifested in changing the language that you use when you talk about people with mental illness. Uh, so we, we call it person-first language, where you don't call somebody uh, the schizophrenic, right? You say a person who has schizophrenia, because there's many other wonderful qualities about them besides their, their illness. I heard you say earlier the word completed suicide instead of committed suicide, which is another change that people make to recognize that um, while in other countries it still is the truth that suicide attempts are, are treated as crimes, that, that there should be more distance between mental illness and, and criminology and, and trying to think that because you have a mental illness, it doesn't mean that you're committing or, or you know, are, are having thoughts of suicide or attempt. I bring that up because I want to ask the question in a little bit different way, which is how have you changed in your approach to mental health 
and, and mental illness since he joined the force to now being in this leadership position, training other people and, and talking to other community partners about the, the real issues of mental illness and substance use facing our community. Uh, you know, language is imperative. You need to speak the language. Now, am I going to be an expert in, in, in the terminology in the mental health system? No, but as an officer, as someone who trains and teaches and encourages officers to seek out information, it's important that that language is utilized so they have an understanding when they communicate with somebody on the street or with another mental health professional. We start by telling officers, you don't stigmatize someone that has a heart condition or diabetes. It's, it's natural. It's understandable. It's part of life. Well, it's really no different when you know or you realize or you find out that someone has schizophrenia or major depression. They are more than their illness. This is something that is cast upon them without their buy-in whatsoever. And once officers understand that and realize that, they become m much more human in dealing with somebody that has, has a condition. Now, we have made a huge effort in ensuring that officers understand what someone is going through understanding their history and how they've progressed from someone that maybe at one point in time was well adjusted but today they're living on the street and they're uh, they're a shadow of their their former selves because of their condition understanding that the scariness that one must confront by having paranoia delusions and hallucinations and that's why CIT training is so important it really pulls the the curtain away from this from many of these disorders um, for me my growth and my understanding and my knowledge has been by just seeking out information by being part of the system you know we have ride-alongs here at the police department I've made it an effort to go on ride-alongs at interact and at network 180 and at cherry health and at other agencies that have been able to provide me with knowledge and information. Kind of a um, reverse ride-along. It's a reverse ride-along. <laughs> I, I remember like my, Actually, I remember my first one. It was at uh, the old Network 180 on Lake Drive. I, I sat in with, uh, oh, oh, I actually was there with uh, Dr. Paul Liberto. Oh, I tell you what, this guy, I could have listened to him all day long. The way he spoke just soft voice, kind, empathetic. I mean, this guy was born to be a therapist. There is, there was no other field for him. <laughs> uh, he didn't have that loud booming voice, like a radio personality. He just, oh, he was just unbelievable. And I just sat there mesmerized like this, this guy's dialed in. And the way he, he, the way he spoke to this young man and I'll always remember this interaction because it involves someone that was a family member to a community member that I knew of and this individual schizophrenic and he was he was very delusional and he was actually just bouncing off the walls he couldn't sit still and Paul just gave him the time and just let him sort of work through what he was feeling what he was seeing or what he was thinking he was seeing and just spent probably a good 15 to 20 minutes and letting this this gentleman get comfortable and then he started to go into, okay, what can we do to help you out? That really, uh, more than anything, and again, this was probably 20 years ago, really just changed me profoundly in the way that the system works on that end. You know, it, it was that it used to be where we just dropped someone off and we thought, okay, we're done with them. They're going to work their magic and all's good with the world. But being educated at that level and bringing that level of education to officers and letting them know, hey, you know what? The folks over at Network Wayne and the mental health system deal with the same people. We're dealing with the same exact people. Now, they're, they're dealing with it on a, a little different level than we are, but the same issues, the same problems. Mm -hmm. They don't carry a gun. We do. We can use force and take people to jail. They can't. 
but we're dealing with the same folks, so let's work together to solve the problems that are confronting many people in our community because this revolving door that we were seeing was not solving any problems. So that self-realization on my part and my genuine interest in, in, this, in this area um, really has helped me out. And, and I've been able to, to you know, ensure that I'm, I continue to stay passionate about it. And when I teach officers about the importance, they get it uh, because I come from, an, from, an, from experience and from knowledge. And, and, and they realize that it works, that you know, if we get people help, yeah, sometimes it'll take a few times, we're going to get people to the place that they need to go. Now, where this has really become profound is what we're dealing with today with the opioid crisis. Now, with crack cocaine back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we tried to arrest our way out of that problem. And certainly, as we can see, hindsight being 2020, that did not work. Well, the way we have dealt with it today, and certainly I think we can speak nationally to this, we're dealing with this as not a criminal justice issue per se, but as a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. And officers, right from the get-go, were trained that, hey, if you're dealing with somebody that has an opioid use disorder, that has maybe some mental underlying mental health issues related, we're going to get them help. Even if they're, they've got drugs on board, even if they've got a needle sticking out of their arm, even if they've got heroin or fentanyl sitting right next to them, we're not going to arrest these folks. We're going to ensure that they, first of all, get medically cleared, get, get their medical issues dealt with if they've overdosed, and then get them into the resources that they need. Um, Red Project. Um, the various substance mm-hmm. substance abuse and substance use disorder clinics that are in the community, making sure that we patch people into those services. And if there is a dealer that we can get in touch with, if there's someone up the chain, yeah, that's what will work on the criminal end of things. But those individuals that are overdosing, we want to make sure that hey, if we got a Narcan them, we're going to Narcan them. If we need to take them to the hospital or ensure that EMS is on its way, we will do that. But we're not going to deal with this as a as purely a criminal justice issue. We're going to deal with this as a public health crisis, which, again, brings in multiple players, multiple systems in dealing with this. This is effective. We've seen our overdose deaths go down. We've seen people getting help. Yep, sometimes it'll be three or four times uh, them overdosing and us showing up before they actually get help. But it's definitely a a, a a positive direction, and it's definitely working in this community. It just sounds like another example of a compassionate health and safety system, which which kind of blows me away. I mean, I, I don't – maybe this resonates with you. Maybe it doesn't, but I would just expect uh, certain groups like law enforcement to be the last ones to, to become more compassionate about mental health issues. Or at least, you know, if you said, if you told someone 30 years ago, hey, this is what the law enforcement of, of 2020 is going to look like, they might laugh and be like, yeah, right, that's, that's not what we do. That's not how we roll. But it's, it's incredible that we're now trying to meet people where they're at and be compassionate. And it's happening with, with emergency departments too and first responders where you say, um, our first step isn't to judge the situation, you know, to judge the person in the situation, but it's to be helpful. And I, that's always the question I come back to is how we can be the most helpful. And I, I'm just uh, uh, blown away by the, by the surge in empathy that we're seeing in our system as we try to care for people who are in these types of crises. Absolutely. You know, we're middlemen, middle women. You know, we're mediators of conflict. We don't take sides. We're there to assist people individuals, groups, those that are in crisis, those that are having issues, whether it's with their significant other or whomever. You tell officers or you explain to officers that, you know what, you're really social workers. Don't tell a cop they're a social worker, but you know what? (laughs) At the end of the day, what are we? We're social workers. Very rarely do we take someone to jail. Probably only 30% of the time we're actually enforcing the law. We're doing other things like social control and ensuring that uh, we're providing service and we're ensuring that we provide 
uh, uh, avenues for people to get assistance, but rarely do we enforce the law. We're social workers, and in in part of that is being empathetic and is being compassionate. Now, I'm a realist as well. Is every cop act that way? Hell no. Is every department as forward thinking as progressive as Grand Rapids? Hell no. You know, some communities, some departments haven't fully bought into this notion. You know, we are law enforcement, but law enforcement really is at the back end of what we do. We're professional. We're service-driven. We ensure that people, when they call us, we address their problems, whatever they are. And arresting someone is the last thing that we typically want to do. And we don't want to go back. If we can resolve a problem, address an issue, the first time we get there, no matter what it is, that's a win. Mm -hmm. Now, are we going to solve all their darn problems? Heck no. Are we, going, are we going to be coming back sometimes? Absolutely. Can we only spend 15 or 20 minutes until we go to the next call? That's probably most of the time. So those chronic issues that oftentimes we're dealing with in the community are chronic for a reason. We're not going to be able to nail down through all the layers of someone's life to address the, the, the basis for the, way, the reason that they're calling or interacting with the police today. But we can certainly do our best to ensuring that when, once we leave there, it's at least stabilized. We've left some sort of positive reaction or interaction with those community members and that we provide them some outlet or resource or provision to ensure that, yes, we're not only that we don't get called back there, but they have a resolution, and we try to empower people to seek those resolutions. We can't solve problems. I cannot cast a solution onto you. We have to empower people to solve their problems, and once you do that, no matter what it is, you're going to be in a much, much better situation. So you talked about Network 180 earlier, which is the community mental health system that oversees uh, Kent County's uh, services, which is the the county that Grand Rapids resides in. And Network 180 has an access center, which some people would call a crisis call center, where kind of like the first step towards getting services or getting support. And, and then they also have an int intensive crisis stabilization team for youth, which is all, other communities refer to it as mobile crisis. Curious how do you... Uh, as the police department interact with the access center, the ICS or mobile crisis teams, and, and then also the crisis residential unit in the county, which is called Pivot, which is operated by Hope Network. So we, we work with Network 180 on a regular basis, but not as much as we used to. Unfortunately, what we have seen and what has occurred in the community, and, and, and our community is not unique in this, that our, our hospital EDs are seeing uh, and are inundated with the majority of our mental health clients. So Network 180 uh, is, a, is a magnificent resource, and they have great employees and great clinicians and therapists. However, oftentimes they're understaffed. Um, they're dealing with acute crises that have other related issues that tend to be physical in nature that forces us to take individuals to the hospital first. Well, once they're in the hospital, that is oftentimes where Network 180 and other case management agencies will sort of fill in and assist us and assist this individual or individuals in getting help. So if, for an example, we're dealing with someone on the street and they're symptomatic and we have to take them into protective custody because they're feeling suicidal or they're not taking care of their basic needs, we will often be going almost 90% of the time to an ED, first of all. Well, once they're in that ED, the social workers in that ED will interact with uh, Network 180 and their clinicians. So we don't, we don't drop people at the crisis at the access center like we used to because we have the hospitals. Now, what is that creating? It's creating hospital environments and ERs that, are, again, are overwhelmed with psych patients. Back in the day, we'd just arrest these people. And back in the day, your jails were filled with psych patients. Well, point. Okay. that has the pendulum has swung to the other end. Now we're dealing with, again, uh, having to provide ser mental health services in an ER or an ED. 
As far as um, dealing with mobile crisis, uh, we have little interaction with uh, the youth mobile crisis uh, program. Um, you know, Andrew put together a great program. We just don't have as many interactions with mm -hmm. youth at that level. Now, they do occur, absolutely. And oftentimes, their team is more at the back end. So once we stabilize a home environment, we will refer and we will ensure that individuals have or family members have the information so his team can come out and address the situation in the home because the research shows that dealing with a child in crisis in the home environment is much better than any sort of uh, acute crisis facility or yeah. even an ER and ED. So getting that team in there. So we're often out the door before they get there. So the interaction is, is, is not often. Now, we'd really like to see more of an adult crisis center, and I know we're working on that, or mm -hmm. a mobile crisis team uh, in, in the community that's an adult version of that. That's hopefully coming down the road. And then a crisis center where we can actually take people that are in crisis and relieve or alleviate some of that, uh, those issues in the EDs. And then acute crisis care, so your, your, some of your um, group homes, some of your AFC homes, and then certainly Pivot. Uh, to be quite honest with you, we used to have a lot of problems with Pivot. Um, <laughs> it, it, mostly it was the result of um, poor training, high turnover, and high acuity, acuity levels. Well, I have, this, to, I have to tell you, <laughs> uh, I was there when some of those problems were occurring. So I was I was the director there for Pivot for a while. And the first, well, we would have you know typical interactions with law enforcement, you know, with with issues day to day as happens in a crisis program. But the first significant one that I remember was I got a call uh, from the police department, and they said we're reaching out because your um, the calls that we get from your facility are in this top tier for the entire zip code. Yeah. And so we wanted to talk about what we could do to be helpful to reduce those calls, you know. Yeah. And I was a little embarrassed, but, you know, the, the cards are kind of stacked against you when you're doing crisis services. Absolutely. But, but I thought it was a really cool, proactive move by the department to say, hey, we want to address this and see what we can do on the front end, not just keep waiting for calls to happen and, and be perpetually frustrated. So anyways, I was there when. Oh, yeah. I just I, wanted to mention I, that. Oh, and you know <laughs> what? You know, Travis, it's, you know, it since you've left and the other – the other uh, directors that have filled in, that have come in after you, they deal with the same issue. And, mm -hmm. it, and it's, it's, it's part of, like you said, what you're dealing with when you're addressing individuals that are in acute crisis, whether they're you know, coming just out of the hospital or in any other situation where they're just – they're not you know, where they need to be and that they're – you are and they are doing the best that they can to ensure that they get out of that environment into some some more stable environment. Mm -hmm. Now, with that being said, in, in, in you bringing that up, you know, it's important that we work together to solve problems such as that, not to cast stones or just complain about right. it, but to actually – um, engage in dialogue and to sit, to sit down and say, okay, what can we do to improve? What can we do to make this better? What are some things that the Grand Rapids Police Department uh, can help you with to ensure that we are there to support you uh, and to assist you in dealing with the folks that you're dealing with? Now, Pivot today is not, I mean, yeah, we get called there, absolutely, but not like we used to. Um, but there are other agencies in the community that have risen to the top, and it's the same thing. Now we're dealing with, we're dealing with acute youth. Um, we have never dealt with this before on this level, so we're dealing with youth that are in a program that they're having significant mental health and behavioral issues to the point where, yes, they're at the top of the call volume per zip code, and we did the same exact thing, the same model. We pulled those people in. We had a dialogue. We brought some other partners in that were part of this in an effort to understand, okay, what is the underlying problem? And it's almost always the same, high acuity level, almost always. Uh, a group of individuals with that acuity level in a close, confined environment, staff turnover, almost always, 
and then just a general lack of training because of that staff turnover. And again, much of it out of the control of the agency themselves. They, they can't control when staff turns over necessarily. Mm -hmm. And they can't control necessarily the people that come in through those doors. So that's when where we come in and, and we do our best to, to, to help solve the problem, to bring forward solutions. So the example I'm bringing up, and again, I don't want to name agencies per se, but hey, you know, we'll come in and we'll do a training for your staff. This is, this is how you handle a particular situation. Mm -hmm. This is what we can do for you. This is what we can't do for you. And then help them to better understand what it means to de-escalate a situation. Make them understand what can we do legally. We just can't arrest a ward of the court that comes from uh, Detroit and just bring them to juvenile detention because that's just not going to work out. We've got to, again, increase this dialogue to ensure that everybody knows what, what's to be expected and to sure, ensure that there's a healthy resolution and that nobody gets hurt. This becomes such a more complicated equation when you introduce empathy into this, into this system. You, you said something very interesting earlier about when you don't arrest every single person that has a mental illness, then your EDs start to get full with people who are seeking treatment. And I just wonder if people realize the, how that complexity changes when you have to see more people like people and less like statistics or less like addicts or, or like their illness and the implications that has on the system and your desire to, to, to see something to its fruition with limited resources. Well, that was truly an unintended consequence. You know, all this great training, continually the drumbeat, don't take these people to jail. Divert them, divert them, divert them. It took a while, but after a few years, cops got it. The unintended consequence is, well, we still got to take them somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, we can't leave them on the street. We need to, you know, we need to get them help. And the ERs, the EDs, were the natural place for them to go. And in fact... I'll get officers now that will say, um, you know, they'll go to a crisis home or they'll go to the community and they'll want an individual arrested. And the officers say, well, we're not going to arrest this person. You know, they're, th what they're doing is part and parcel to the underlying mental illness that they have. This is not an arrestable offense. And they complain to me sometimes that the expectation is of arresting people and they and they say that that's not the right place for this person to go and that we need more resources out in the community. And I tell them, hey, we're working on it. We just we're not there yet. And I, they get frustrated because these folks will go to the ERs, the EDs, and then they'll cycle back out because an ER is not providing mental health services at all. They're sitting on a cot in a hallway. Maybe they see a social worker. Maybe they get an appointment, but they're left to go to that appointment on their own. They're not directed there by someone that's going to assist them through the system. So they fall back, go out to their old bad habits, whether they're drug users or they got a, you know, other things in the community that are pulling them away from getting help. And the officer goes right back to seeing that same person. And they get frustrated because they think the ERs, the EDs, are a place where they're getting help when in all reality they are not getting help uh, at all. So I appreciate the level of understanding that officers have. I appreciate the level of empathy because 10 years, you, you didn't see that. It was cops getting pissed off that they couldn't take these folks to jail and that we weren't solving the problems today where, in fact, some people probably should go to jail and they're not taking them to jail. So you've mm -hmm. got to tell them, hey, this person, although they have a, they have a mental health condition, what they're doing on the street has nothing to do with their mental health issues. And their case manager will say, hey, just arrest this guy. He just he needs to see Jesus, and Jesus is the judge. And even officers <laughs> are reluctant sometimes to do that. So yeah. I appreciate that. But you can probably appreciate also that officers are put into a unique situation sometimes. Like, okay, where is the right place for an individual? And that's why... That's where I play more of a role. I let officers know that, hey, if you're dealing with a particular individual that's a high utilizer, if you're dealing with a, a particular location such as a, a pivot or a, a particular group home that sees disproportionate calls, 
you know, if we're not already flagging it or recognizing it, get that information to me. I'll make a call. We'll have a, you know, we'll have a, you know, a sit down over coffee or lunch mm. and work through it. And officers do a very good job with that. An area where we have made leaps and bounds, and I understand this is a little bit off topic, but is with our um, intellectual and developmental disability community, particularly those with autism or on the spectrum. Officers have been trained up uh, in a big way the last few years, and uh, they take great pride in, in interacting with uh, lower-functioning folks that are on the spectrum and ensuring that they get the help that they need um, by flagging those addresses and letting other officers know these are the triggers, these are the issues that are going to make this person behaviorally unstable or that are going to be problematic. So that, that training has been hugely important as well, and, and officers are really glommed on to it. And they, and they realize that, again, oftentimes it's not the behavior that they see that these individuals are exhibiting is not, of, it's not who they are. I imagine some of your progress as a police department has been organic, and some of it has come through conversations with community partners about how to do things better. But I also imagine maybe you look to other uh, police departments or other cities, comparable cities in size or or resources. Can you tell me about that? Like, how how do you how else do you get fed or get better at this, especially from a mental health perspective? Beyond going to to Memphis to see the CIT model, is it conferences? Is it you know visits to Milwaukee, Louisville, whatever whatever cities are comparable? I'm just curious how how you've learned who you've learned from or how how you get get better in that way. We we really learn mostly from our community partners. Um, they bring a lot of knowledge to the table, a lot of experience that we wouldn't otherwise have. The programs and the model that we use here with regards to CIT, uh, peer support, um, really is um, formulated and evol is evolved through the interaction through conferences and uh, dialoguing through different types of opportunities such as trainings and in any time that we're invited to something that has some sort of mental health component to it where whether it's a neighborhood summit speaking with a particular clinician on a particular individual so that that experience that understanding that evolution that training uh, really is multi-dimensional we get it from a, a lot of different areas and a lot of different experiences we don't really seek out information from other departments. You know, although I'll do research and read up on the latest trends, it's, it's more likely that um, people will call us. And to be perfectly honest with you, um, nationally, this is, this is the standard, mm. this, or it should be the standard. So most agencies our size, a medium-sized agency, and above really get this, most of them, in the understanding that this is best practice. This is evidence-based training. This is an evidence-based model in how to deal with someone that has a mental health condition. And at the end of the day, a police department should be providing the best service that they possibly can. And they also understand if they don't go in this direction, not only are they behind the eight ball with regards to contemporary policing models, but they're certainly opening themselves to um, litigation and issues that uh, are going to affect mm -hmm. uh, their community uh, from the bottom line standpoint. So, you know, we have to evolve as a community. We have to evolve, evolve as a police department, you know, whether it's the way the, the method in which we are trained, whether it's body worn cameras, whether it's. Uh, transparency with regards to providing information. We are an extension of the community. You know, we're the government, but we're the government of the people, and we're part of the community, and we need to understand that, you know, we're here to make a difference. We're here to certainly be part of a solution, and most importantly, we need to ensure that there's a level of transparency and honesty and that people will, will trust us. We're getting near the end of our time, but the last question I wanted to ask you, we've, we've obviously talked about just how inherently challenging this work is, especially if you want to do it right, like you just kind of mentioned. Um, 
what gives you inspiration to keep doing this work um, and or who who does uh, you know who who who's influenced you to to believe and think the way you do to continue to persevere um, amidst challenges I would say first and foremost and I had mentioned this earlier the the younger officers the new officers that have come on board here in the last four five six years uh, just the 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 passion, the compassion, the understanding that this this is the model, and, and they understand it because they know nothing different. It really gives me encouragement and really um, keeps me energized moving forward because it can be frustrating. It, it can be taxing, uh, particularly when you're dealing with uh, some of the same folks day in and day out. And the great work that's happening in the community, and there's continually new initiatives, you know, whether it's from Pine Rest or from Network 180 or Cherry Health or or Interact. All these agencies are doing their very best, and and working collaboratively like we've never done before, really, you know, really makes me happy that yes, we've come a long way, and we can certainly do better. But if I have to call somebody, I can pick up the phone. I have their name in my contact list, and we can dialogue right there. Where 20 years ago, it would take me five calls and six meetings before we even figured out what the problem was. Mm-hmm. Now you're going right to the source. And when you make those connections, when you develop those relationships, things happen so much quicker, so much easier. You can go right to the source. For example, you know, we're dealing with folks in the Heartside community that, um, for the lack of a better term, go off the grid. You know, they're not going to Mel's. They're not going to Degage. We just don't know where they're at oftentimes. So went down to Street Reach the other day, met with Brian and Victoria. And, you know, we talked about some other things, but we also wanted to ensure that, hey, if we have a petition for someone that needs treatment, and it just says homeless on there, you know, how can we better able find this to better, what can we do to find this person and not let that petition lapse, but get that person the help that they need? How can we get with you without violating law to ensure that we can execute that petition so we can get that person some help? You know, that, that, was, a, that was a one call, one meeting, to open up those lines of communication and that wouldn't have happened before. And it just, it empowers you to, uh, to know that, you know what, we care, I care just as much as those folks. In fact, they probably care more um, because that's what they do day in and day out. They do, they do street work. They, they go out into the community and interact with people, you know, under the bridges, on the streets, at the homeless shelters. And, and those are the folks that we tend to deal with um, disproportionately. Sounds like an approach where you're kind of everyone's kind of plateauing and doing the clinical wor- world. It's called uh, working to the top of your license, but it's like doing what you do best and finding the other people that do what they do best and learning from them and and leaning on each other instead of relying on yourselves to to do everything. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And and again, we'll we'll be the first ones to admit that we can't do it all. We don't know it all. Um, but we're certainly willing to partner with those that do and, and have those resources, have that expertise, have that experience. I feel I, I, I'm an effective communicator, um, but I, I know clinicians that, again, I go back to Dr. Paul Liberto, you know, the people like that that just, um, you know, just make that, that difference that, you know, you oftentimes can't quantify, um, but are, are everything in that human interaction. John, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks for spending some time with me. Thank you, Travis. I appreciate it. That is Sergeant John Witkowski, Public Information Officer for the Grand Rapids Police Department. To learn more about CIT International, visit citinternational.org. To learn more about the Grand Rapids Police Department, visit grandrapidsmi.gov.